Thanks for listening to The Vine's podcast. The Vine is a church in Austin, Texas with the simple goal of following Jesus together. And we hope this message helps you in doing just that. Sure, today comes from Ephesians 4, 29 through 32. And I'm reading the New American Standard Bible translation. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. This is the word of the Lord. We are in a series called Seek First, and in this series we're talking about how it's so important to choose what we seek in life, and there seems like this natural gravitational pull to seek the wrong thing, and so each week we're talking about ensuring that we seek the right thing first. So guys, let me hear, what is your embodiment of cynicism? I'm really curious. Let me hear it. What were your answers? Archie Bunker, a new and relevant uh, example for all the young ones out there. <laughs> That's great. I actually, I know who Archie Bunker is, yeah. What else? What's that? Church lady? Oh, yeah. I see. Dana Carvey? Well, isn't that special? Another contemporary example. <laughs> Generation gaps are really wide today. What else? Huh? Grew from the mint. Yes, the minions. Chandler Bing. That's great. That's great. All right, my example, if you like Parks and Rec, is April Ludgate. I think she, for me, is the embodiment of cynicism and uh, my attempt of also relating to the youngins, right? Uh, I'm not sure if even the young folks might like Parks and Rec, but I certainly do. What do all of these characters have in common, though? I know that's a harder question. They see the dark side? Yeah. What else? Huh? They're funny. Yes. There's, there's a humor to cynicism. There's an attraction to it. Getting extra credit. Thank you. There's some truth to it. Absolutely. That's a great point. For me, we're going to talk about the power of cynicism this morning. And the cynicism is not just about fictional characters it's, or in media. It's actually here too. Who are my natural cynics in life here in this room? Who are y'all? Where are you guys at? I know you're here. <clears throat> I see you. Okay, great. Um. There's many of us who that's our natural posture in life. I am actually a kind of a perpetual optimist, which sometimes is super annoying to be around. For those who know the Enneagram, I am an Enneagram 7, which you might not be surprised about. Uh, For me, life is full of wonder and adventure and beauty and possibility. Jen is an Enneagram 6, so she she has this ability to see the dark and disturbing reality that's in our world. In my response when she expresses how hard and difficult and dark and bleak this world is, my response is often, 
Are you kidding me? Life is magic, which is not that helpful, right? But to be honest, life is kind of magic, y'all. When you think about this, we are on this itty-bitty rock hurling through the universe, and we're flying around this big flaming ball of gas that's sustaining all of our life. And if, if our planet, if Earth was just tilted a couple degrees over, we wouldn't have seasons or life as we know it couldn't be sustained. And here we are standing on that rock flying through the universe and we have things like seasons and oceans and creme brulee and hummingbirds, the cello, guys. We have satellites, queso, pancakes, we have Dolly Parton. We don't deserve Dolly Parton, but we have Dolly Parton. Life is just magic. I've always had that kind of perspective. My senior quote, if you guys like went to high school and had a senior quote, my senior quote as a little 18-year-old was, I'd rather be an optimist and a fool than a pessimist and right. Mark Charbonneau, right? <laughs> I just thought like maybe I, that was deep. And also, I mean, it kind of is like my personality because it's just a better way to live. I'd rather be an optimist and a fool than be correct and be a pessimist. But then life happens and disappointments begin to emerge. Uh, friends disappear. Those whom you most respected end up disappointing and hurting you the most. Words like cancer and debt and terminal become more and more common in your life. And then you begin to zoom out on society. And it seems like for every step we take forward, it seems like somewhere else we're taking a step backwards. And even for an eternal optimist like myself, cynicism and sarcasm becomes the backdrop that we spend most of our days. For me, cynicism is a learned posture towards life that's built upon disappointment, hurt, and exposed hypocrisy. Just like we said about those characters that all embody cynicism, they're truth tellers, right? They're actually pointing at something that's true. But when we live with cynicism, the innocent trust that we once had is converted into this cynical doubt. And we begin to have this framework of negative framework through life that we learn to anticipate the worst from people in situations. And why do we do that? Well, it's safer to await harm and negativity if it actually happens. And for me, there's a particular kind of cynicism that I see here as well that I'd like to deal with today. It's the cynicism that has become normalized as followers of Jesus in our generation and especially in cities like Austin. Because it's a cynicism of faith. It's like we try to weave cynicism in around a life with God. Last week, we talked about how churches built around sameness often create fences of exclusion. Many, many of you have visited with me about how this has taken place in your own life and how those uh, church cultures have done damage to people. And that there's a particular kind of pain when you choose to leave a community of sameness. There's a, a particular kind of pain when you find yourself thrown over the fence of sameness. And one of the most natural responses that we have in those places, in those experiences, is an embrace of cynicism. 
We see the damage that religious fencing has done, and we grow cynical. Then you take a step back from our own personal experiences, and we look at the big C church, and we we look at the headlines, and we begin to, to see all of the hypocrisy and the empty lip service, the prosperity gospel that is just so prevalent, the exclusion and judgment that many church contexts have, and all of that also fuels the cynical framework that is just so common. So in my own life, for around a decade, cynicism towards the church was my default posture. I experienced um, some frustration and cynicism after uh, two of the most influential pastors in my life, the one from my childhood and the one through my college, both had secret adulterous lives. And they came, it came out and it just wreaked havoc on not only in our churches, but also in this young man's life and my experience of church. I also saw spiritual abuse before we knew to call it spiritual abuse. I actually went to seminary without ever thinking I would be a pastor. I had no desire to be a pastor. I wanted to run a, a Christian camp because, you know, nothing creepy happens at Christian camps. <laughs> and uh, I was trying to do this thing where I held a deep appreciation for the way of Jesus while also holding a really cynical posture towards the church. And spoiler alert, that's really hard to do. Cynicism began to spread, and the seeds of bitterness and hopelessness began to take root in my own life, in my own faith. And I know that I am not unique in that, that those seeds have been scattered throughout your own hearts and minds and souls as well. Cynical Christianity for me is the broad path that leads to a lot of destruction. Cynical Christianity is almost its own version of faith, and here's the recipe that we try to use when we have this faith. It's equal parts postmodern sensibility, a de deconstructing faith, creative rewording of the Christian vernacular. We pepper that with the jaded humor, drizzle it with the dismissive treatment of generations before us, and if you can cross your arms long enough, then you have had it rooted in your heart. Boom, there you're there. The cynical Christian. And my fear for our generations, and at times my fear even for our own church, the concern I have for our own church, is that we will unknowingly baptize cynicism. That we'll unknowingly baptize cynicism and we'll treat it as something like a virtue to behold. And my fear is that this actually undercuts a life with God. For instance, I went to a conference last year, and it was a gathering of pastors who probably... Uh, found themselves growing up in the tradition of the evangelical tradition, but now have found themselves outside the fence. Um, that's a, a bigger conversation for another day. But um, there was a conference with a lot of those individuals. Uh, it was full of great people, really meaningful conversations, great talks. Uh, but there was this pervasive air of cynicism around the whole thing. The conference was full of, uh, well, Permission to act like an old curmudgeon for a second? Can, can I be that for a little bit, please? Uh, there seemed to be this, like, unspoken contest of, like, who could be the most triggered? Uh, <laughs> whether it be a song that was sung that's just out of date, or the aesthetics of the church building kind of triggers me. Um, also, maybe even the speakers who were speaking that morning all were fodder for this kind of cynical uh, response to it. The contest also included 
um, who could be the most uh, critical of everything. I heard phrases like, that song just traumatized me. I'm actually okay, like, I actually think trauma vocabulary is really important, but what makes me really frustrated is when we belittle it and trivialize it by things like that. Uh, it was almost like this one, one upsmanship of cynicism. Who could be the most cynical, like trendy and faddish in many ways? And do you know what, you're, you know what I'm talking about? Like, can you guys experience this in your own life? Um, if April Ludgate was the example of cynicism, I felt like this that whole conference. <laughs> like Ron Swanson just going, what's going on? But the highlight for me, the highlight for me for that time was one of those days I sat down to the, next to the two oldest people in the room. And these were men, looked around 70 years old, both retired pastors. I asked them why they came to Denver for this conference. And they responded, they said, we came because we are hopeful that the church is learning a better way. We are excited about what is coming. These two men came to this conference fueled by hope, and they experienced something very different than the rest of us. The juxtaposition of the hopefulness of these two retired pastors and the cynicism that I clearly battle as well was gripping to me. Because I'm afraid that our generation is unknowingly learning to baptize cynicism. Let me share four reasons why I think cynicism is the broad path that leads to destruction. The first reason is that cynicism has a self-fulfilling power. As a staff, we've been talking about Jesus' promise uh, when he said, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be opened to you. And what we've been talking about as a staff is like, what if Jesus' words here is not trying to make Jesus out to the, a genie in the bottle that gives us whatever we ask, but what instead, what if Jesus is saying there's something really powerful about our intentions, about what we're seeking after, we'll actually find, what we're asking for, we'll actually get. Almost like a word of warning, Jesus is saying, make sure you are seeking after the right thing. A mantra that I live by is this phrase I picked up along the way. It says, what you focus on determines what you miss. And I, this for me resonates so deeply because I think it's human nature and the function of how our brains work to dismiss everything else that we are not looking for and to see like the one light bulb that is out and the 99 that are, uh, that are brining shyly, uh, sh- shining brightly. We'll just focus on the thing that is missing and we'll just have this tendency to miss out on so much bigger things. Similarly, if we distance ourselves from the church, if we take this kind of posture away from the church, and all we hear about the church is whatever failure hits the headlines, whatever you know, traumatic thing that we experience from a distance, don't be surprised if we find our cynicism strengthened. It has this self-fulfilling power. Seek and you will find. I think that cynicism, the self-fulfilling power, it blinds us from everything that can actually fuel our faith, to bring us joy, to, to, to fuel our hope. It blinds us from all the gifts that God has scattered throughout our lives. And if we live with that cynical framework, all that we will see will be reinforcing this negative view of life and life with God. Cynicism has a self-fulfilling power. The second issue with cynicism is that it closes off and it hardens. 
In response to the pain and the afflictions that we experience, we learn to cover. And that's an important thing. That's a good thing to protect ourselves. In many ways, though, cynicism can be a type of armor in response to the disappointments that we've experienced. And rather than being surprised by the failures of others, we anticipate it. And we close ourselves off from the source of disappointments. This makes sense, but there's also this nasty trade-off. It's similar to the experience of depression. As one of my friends tried to explain to me uh, who battles depression, he said that depression is not just the inability to feel joy. It's the inability to feel anything. When we honor armor up with cynicism. The problem with taking this type of defense is that it's not selective. It has the tendency to harden and to block off the good things in life that God would want to give us as well. It has the tendency to block off joy and wonder and simple childlike hope, as well as all the negative experiences. This is a helpful defense mechanism, but it ends up making us hardened people. This is why when you talk to people who maybe have that cynical framework and you talk to them about their previous experience, you will hear a lot of disappointment, a lot of frustration, a lot of pain. But if you listen carefully, you might also hear missing the things of the past as well. Perhaps the connection to God in prayer, being moved in worship like they used to be. They'll miss the sense of purpose and community and solidarity with the church. Cynicism closes off the paths of pain, but it also shuts down the paths of joy. That hardening also has a surprise. Many of us become cynical because the church was judgmental, rejecting, might have been numb to the spirit. But if you allow cynicism to harden yourself, guess what? We become judgmental, rejecting, numb to the moving of the spirit. Cynicism has this power to close us off and harden us. The third issue with cynicism for me, the third concern I have for it is cynicism is sticky. Cynicism is usually birthed from real pain and people being burned by the church or whatever, experience rejection, or they get to see how the sausage is made and they get really disappointed by it. They lose something. Like a wound is given and the church is tarnished. And let me just say this clearly. Jesus' response to that, Jesus' call is not to ignore the pain or disappointment. It's not to do that. We aren't called to blow sunshine at our sufferings or sedate it with some, some empty Christian platitude. There's no way of healing except through honesty. But the problem with cynicism is that it's sticky. As we go through honesty, as we express that, as we're able to, to really feel the frustrations... Many of us just get stuck there. Yes, I think cynicism can be a healthy step, but it's meant just to be that, just a step towards healing and redemption and restoration. The stickiness of cynicism makes me think of how Psalm 1 begins. This is how the very first psalm begins. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers but whose delight, whose joy is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yield its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. 
The very first psalm shares this visual of a flourishing life, like this tree being planted by streams of living water that goes throughout seasons. But there's something that thwarts it. And I want to point out how the warning we find here. It's a progression. Notice this progression to the contrary life than to the blessed, to the blessed life. It begins like this. To walk in step with the wicked and then to stand in the way that sinners take. And then for us in this conversation today, to sit in the company of mockers. It's a movement from walking to standing to sitting. And I have seen how mockery and cynicism to sit down at that seat can, can become a place where we get stuck. It is in the seat of mockery that we grow cold and we learn to expect the disappointments of the church. And if we're honest, we almost enjoy it when we see the failures of the church. We must be careful of the stickiness to take a seat in the company of mockers. It, there's a stickiness to that type of cynicism. And the fourth concern I have is that cynicism sidelines. When we embrace a life of cynicism, when, when that becomes our, our framework for understanding life and faith and an experience of God, it has the ability to sideline us. Back to that conference experience that I mentioned earlier, if we take a cynical approach into worship, we easily sit there and have the role of critic, almost like you would have like a theater critic, but instead you're going to worship. And like, you know, you get to, to have that point of view of, not, that's not my favorite song. That transition was weird. That preacher missed something there. And all of a sudden, we're taking a step back from it. We can be sidelined by cynicism and forget that we just had the opportunity to worship the living God. Like we have set aside this hour, this one hour a week, to worship a living God, and instead we're sidelined by cynicism. And if we were to take that into the rest of our life, we can be easily sidelined outside a church, and we think about when we approach the rest of this life with a, a, a framework of cynicism, we miss out on the experience of partnering with God in a world that needs justice and mercy. We are not called to critique from the sideline. We are called to step forward and be peacemakers in this world. Theodore Roosevelt shared a famous quote saying this, "'It is not the critic who counts.'" Not the one who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done better. The credit belongs to the one who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who spends oneself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement and at the worst it fails, at least fails while daring greatly." so that their place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. As followers of Jesus, we cannot allow cynicism to sideline us. It's so easy to take our seat as the critic, to poke holes at the fallen institutions of Christianity, to hate on the church. I mean, it's almost trendy. It's almost palatable as a Christian to have that kind of posture. It's easy to be the critic, but the hard work is to get into the arena of healing, of restoring, of rebuilding. 
we cannot allow our witness and the work of the church to be stunted by the failures and pain from others or from the past. Way too much is at stake. I believe the very people who can most powerfully bear witness to Jesus in this world and who can bring in the kingdom of God most effectively are those who have experienced the fallenness of the church and yet are a part of rebuilding something better, more beautiful, more true, to actually get in the game and help partner with Jesus, believing that in much of all the fallenness of the church, it is still the way in which God is bringing the kingdom in this world. Dorothy Day, the Catholic activist, she said in a provocative way, she said, the church is a harlot, but she is also my mother. And as much as we might want to just throw the church to the side, it's mothered us. It's brought us here. And I would say, and maybe more important for us as we gather as a church, is the possibility that we could help mother better, that we could partner with God to see what God could birth, see what God could nurture, see how the church can be a protector instead of an instigator to be a place of healing and restoration, rather be a place of destruction. This is why it's so important. We can't stand on the sideline. Too much is at stake. Those are four reasons. Among many, I think we've got to get off the path of cynicism. But it's, it's not just rejecting cynicism. We also need to seek something else. We need to pursue something else. For me, the opposite of cynicism it's not just blind optimism. It's not just blowing sunshine at the world and denying injustices. The opposite of cynicism for me is sincerity. To be people who are sincere, to have sincerity of heart. The English word for sincere comes from two Latin words, uh, meaning sine, which is without, and sera, which is wax. Without wax. In the ancient world, dishonest merchants would take pottery that had cracks or defects things that were not perfect, and they would use wax to mask their merchandise so that they could continue to sell it at a higher price. More reputable merchants, knowing that this happened, would hang a sign over their pottery that would say, Sine Sera, without wax, to inform the customers that their merchandise would be genuine, would be real, authentic. I believe that Jesus' narrow way from cynicism is to be people of sincerity, without wax. People who are honest and vulnerable. People of warmth, open-heartedness. To not be blocked off and armored up with sincerity, but actually be vulnerable. Though our faith might be cracked and chipped, we aren't going to gloss over it. We aren't going to discard it altogether. We're going to bring that which we are, the things that we have, we're going to offer our hearts and our lives with sincerity. Our greatest calling as followers of Jesus are to be people of love. This is our greatest calling. This is why Paul's instructions to the church of Rome is so important. This is Romans 12, Romans 12 verse 9. Love must be sincere. Love must be without wax, not covered or hidden or glossed over. It must be sincere. Paul goes on to say, in a very odd way, Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. <laughs> so notice, like sincere love while also calling things out with truth, with honesty. 
to, to not just embrace all things, but actually to push away what's evil, to cling what is good. He's not saying here to ignore evil, just be soft and kind people. No, stand up for injustices and evil. But then he marries it with this. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourself. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, and faithful in prayer. The way forward for the church is that of sincere love. And if cynicism is about armoring up, about being hardened, sincerity is about opening up oneself, about being vulnerable, about being tender. I love how Brene Brown illustrates this. Vulnerability is essential for healing and courageous living. She says this, In the same way that we depend on our physical heart to pump life-giving blood to every part of our body, we depend on our emotional heart to keep vulnerability coursing through the veins of courage and to engage in all the behaviors we talk about being necessary for good work, trust, innovation, creativity, accountability. Vulnerability is like the lifeblood for the soul. Sincerity is where love begins. We have to fight to retain the sincerity of heart. It takes courage. It takes vulnerability. That's why Paul's word to the church in Ephesus is good words for us too. He says in Ephesians 4.31, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Those are words of cynicism. Anger, wrath, bitterness, slander, malice, all cynical words, all describing a heart of cynicism. He says, take all that out of you, like Pull that out from your heart and your soul, and instead, be kind to one another. I love this. Tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. There's no way for us to experience that blessed life without us being people who are tender-hearted. The only way we can do that is to rid bitterness and anger from your soul, to take off the armor of cynicism, to remember kindness, to remember forgiveness, to remember being tender-hearted. That's how we participate in the kingdom of God. This is how we display Jesus. And think about it. If anyone had reason to be cynical in this world, wouldn't it have been Jesus? Rejected, dismissed, ignored, misunderstood, denied, abandoned. Jesus had all the reasons to be cynical. All the reasons to have a negative framework. And yet Jesus displays the sincerity, this vulnerability, this woundability. He was tender-hearted. Even when he returns from the cross and the empty tomb, there was no shaming, no judgment, no ridicule, no disdain. Tender-hearted Jesus, he shows himself woundable and vulnerable to his friends. And it's from those wounds that we as a church have been born and we have been sent into this world with the sincerity of Jesus. The sincerity of Christ is before me and you today. And I wonder if Jesus would sit down with you just to help you take stock of where the seeds of cynicism and bitterness has made its way into your heart and your soul. All the army, armor that we have picked up along the way that blocks off joy and hope. For the parts of us that we might miss, as we look back in our past, the closeness of Jesus, the sincerity of faith, a vulnerability with God, maybe even a belief in the church 
There is a remedy towards away from cynicism. There's a remedy towards sincerity. And you know what it is? Become a child. It's childlikeness. It's pure. It's simple. There's a tenderheartedness that children have that can teach us. It makes me think of Jesus lifting up a child and saying, there's no way into the kingdom unless you become like this. Children are not cynical. They're taught to be. Especially when pain robs them of their innocence and it hurts them, then they grow cynical. But that's not how they were created. The work of God is to renew us, to restore us, where there's no need to wax over the cracks, there's no need to hide or to cover. It's where we get to bring ourselves to God like a child. It's where we get to go there and seek and ask for God to restore us a childlikeness even now, right now in this moment, to even like what God might want to have for you right now is to have a heart that's not hardened, that's not callous, that's not armored up, but that's tender, that's open, that's sincere again. We hope you found this message encouraging. If you would like to learn more about the Vine, get connected to our community, or contribute financially to the Vine's ministry, go to our website at thevineaustin.org.